Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, and it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Whitney Quisenberry. Where do I start? Whitney has done so many amazing things in her career. She's currently based in the DC Baltimore area, where she's the co-founder and director of the Center for Civic Design, a non-profit UX consultancy working to ensure voter intent through design. Whitney serves on the advisory boards for the Center for Tech and Civic Life, Los Angeles County's Voting Systems for All People, Voting Works, and the Participatory Budgeting Project. She is also the co-creator of the first course on election design for the University of Minnesota's Certificate in Election Administration, a fellow of the Society for Technical Communication, an expert for both Rosenfeld Media and UIE's Center Center, and she's taught UX research at Rutgers University. In her spare time, amongst many other things, she's also authored three books on UX, A Web for Everyone, Designing Accessible User Experiences with Sarah Horton, Storytelling for User Experience with Kevin Brooks, and Global UX Design and Research in a Connected World with Daniel Zook. Before starting the Center for Civic Design, Whitney invested over 23 years solving complex problems as a consulting UXer for organizations like the National Cancer Institute, the New York Times, and Sage Software. But coming back to the present day, Whitney's passionate about making interactions with government effective and enjoyable, and she's here with me now to take a deep dive into how to make that happen. Whitney, welcome to the show. Oh, glad to be here, Brendan. It's great to have you here, Whitney. I've really been looking forward to today's conversation. And something that came up when I was doing my research for today was that before you were a UXer, you were a theatrical lighting designer and you oh, worked nice. both on and off Broadway. And I understand that was from the mid-1970s until the early 90s. What drew you to the theatre? Um I think my entire career of everything I've done has been one piece of serendipity after another. Um, I went to college in the 70s and uh, there was a requirement for gym, for physical education. And mm. I'm not a very gym sort of person, uh, but it turned out that there was a, a dance group and that you would take dance classes and uh, that working on the crew for the dance uh, group would count as gym. <laughs> and uh, there I was in this sort of, you know, classic liberal arts college and suddenly discovered uh, theater, uh, not as, I mean, I, I, my father was an English teacher. I, you know, I knew theater as literature, uh, mm -hmm. but I suddenly discovered theater as performance and uh, uh, was not someone who was very good on stage. Um, I think there are people from that era who would say, you talk in public in front of audiences? No, you can't be the same person. <laughs> Um, but that there's, there's the people who are, are front and center, which we might think of as our users. And there's mm -hmm. the people who create the surround that all that action happens in. And those are the designers. Mm -hmm. So you see, it's really the same business. I've just been doing the same thing in different boxes all along. <laughs> it sounds like that time in the theater did unknowing to yourself at the time, shape your UX practice. 
How did those experiences end up playing out and what you were to come to do as a UXer? Sure. I think there, there are probably a couple of things about it. One is that theater is definitely a team sport, right? I mean, I mm. suppose, um, you know, you could be one person and you're performing and you're standing on a street corner, but the minute you're doing anything um, substantial, there's a, there's a real team around you and that that team might fight about anything they want to fight about, but at eight o'clock on performance night, they have to be doing one show, right? There's only one show mm. you can do at a time. Um, and, and there has to be a director for that. And, and your job is to all figure out what your slice of that pie is to make that director's vision come true. Um, mm. So that was one. And the other was the whole idea of iteration, right? Because what is a dress rehearsal but a usability test? And what is a, you know what is the <laughs> preview performance but a, but a beta, right? And the idea of constantly iterating. Um, I worked briefly uh, as the assistant lighting designer for Big Apple Circus. Um, mm. This is a one ring circus, was one of the people that brought the one ring circus to the United States, the European style circus. And they would bring over stars. And one guy uh, they brought over that year was a clown. And he did this wonderful, wonderful act about musical instruments. And he went out the first day in front of this ring full of American children and he bombed. He mm. bombed really badly. And we all waited for him to, you know, say, well, American children don't, don't get my art, right? The sort of thing you might expect. And instead he asked for some ring time. And while we were doing some technical work around the edges, um, you could see that he was walking through his show. He was thinking, oh, somebody laughed there. So I got a reaction here. And that day he he built those pieces up and he did that every day for a week until he had them all responding to his show because he didn't say, I'm going to make a new show for these Americans. He didn't say they're Philistines and they don't understand my art. He just adjusted it bit by bit by bit, mm -hmm. fine tuned it. And I think that if I had not seen it day by day, I'm not sure I would have known the difference, right? It was all those mm -hmm. little details of the craft that made the difference. And I think that's a lot about, you know, it's pretty easy to make a website these days or to make an app. Anybody can get the tools and make something that stands up and does something. But it's the mm. details. It's all those little things about anticipating what users will react to, what they'll notice, where the friction is, where the, where the slippery slide is, that that's what makes a really great design. Mm. It also sounds like he was willing to put his ego aside and to be willing to be wrong and learn from that and, and improve that experience for his audience. Yeah. I mean, so it, it didn't take the audience for granted, um, mm. worked, worked to earn them, um, and, and, and succeeded because he was mm. so in, in control of his craft that he could do that. Mm. What a great formative experience. Why yeah. did you leave? Um, hmm. uh, I moved out of the city and I, a friend who'd been doing rock and roll uh, was working as the IT director for a small company that was experimenting with this interesting new idea called hypertext. And <laughs> they needed someone to write some documentation. He said, you're an English major, I bet you can do this. And so <laughs> I went down and started writing some documentation and discovered you know, it was really interesting stuff. I'd been, you know, I, Theater design is very technological, so you're, it's very constrained by the, the limits of what you can do with a, a lighting instrument. Uh, mm. So I wasn't really afraid of the technology. I didn't know much about computers. Um, and 
uh, I was working at a theater in Philadelphia at the time, and to get there I would drive south, and to get to the theater I would turn right, to get to the, the office of the company I would turn left, and one day I turned left and I should have been turning right, and I thought, mm -hmm. I've just switched careers, haven't I? You know? <laughs> Don't want um, you. To be fair, um, there's a pretty steep uh, uh, pyramid you have to climb to get, and I'd gotten to a pretty good place in lighting design, but I, I'm, I'm not sure I would have made it up the next stair. So. There's, you know, there's a bit of that. I think if my, if I'd been doing top shows on Broadway, I probably would not be sitting here talking to you. I'd be talking to someone else, but I wasn't. Mm. And I think I was good at lighting, but I think this is really what I was born to do. Hmm. It's interesting how you can only really see that in hindsight and, and realize that that was the decision that was being made. It's interesting also because there's a parallel there with how Steve Krug entered the industry. He started writing technical manuals as well for a friend because that noticed that he was an English major. So <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, look, Steve and I are both old enough that there was a, a lot more opportunity for that kind of serendipity to happen and people just get asked to do things. I think mm. um, there's always a moment in the development of a new profession when everybody came from somewhere else. And so I remember a debate on a listserv once that said, you know, someone was talking about the what's the relationship between sort of user research or design research and, and journalism. And yeah. someone who had been a journalist was talking about, you know, the things that they were bringing from that. And someone said, well, does that mean that we should be making all of our students go into journalism? And they went, no, 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 that's just the path I took. Right. Mm. But but there are things we can learn about listening and thinking about the difference between short form ethnography and long form journalism and the difference between an interview to get a good bite sound bite and an interview to really get at a deeper a deeper experience mm. yeah there's a lot of the transferable skills that exist yeah. a few weeks back i had a conversation with someone who i believe you know well lou rosenfeld we spoke about lou's notion of moment prisons which is this idea that we trap ourselves by holding on too tightly to our community or our own definition of who we are and what we do. As someone whose career in UX has spanned 30 years, how have you thought about your role in the industry and how that's evolved in that time? Oh, I think my role probably hasn't changed that much. I think I've always been kind of a pain in the ass, um, <laughs> and, you know, a little restless all the time. Um, I, I think Lou talks about that in that in that interview very very nicely about how he started this as a sort of hobby. Um, but I think that the industry changes, and so your relationship to the industry changes. I mean, you know, at one at one point I was the young outsider. And then I was mm -hmm. the middle-aged insider, and now I'm the actually outsider again, almost to the to the industry itself. And I I yeah. listen to some of the podcasts, and I think, you know, no, I'm really not actually in that industry anymore because I'm not working on, uh, you know, giant design systems um, at the scale that we work on it now, where you're keeping that many. You know, there's all these. Uh, you know, I'm chasing I'm chasing different sets of problems, but I'm not chasing those problems and. I think one of the mistakes as you get older in the in a field is to think that, uh, well, a to think that your solutions are the right ones. I mean that's obviously an error, but also to think that that each generation or each you know, quasi generation, sh shouldn't be relearning those 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 things because they may come up with something very similar, but it's always got a different flavor. It's got a little different culture, and I think we're learning that happens over time. It happens when you spread geographically. 
than it happens mm. when you go deep into diversity. Now, Whitney, you're obviously a very considered person, and I also get the sense that you're a really patient and persistent person as well. Is that a fair description? Yeah. And where do those attributes come from? Um, I, I had red hair when I was younger. No, I think, uh, look, I, I've, when I said I was a pain in the ass, I sort of meant that both realistically and jokingly, which is that um, I've always been someone who comes in and rearranges the furniture in a room where I'm giving a workshop. And I've always been someone who sort of insists that there ought to be ways that are better. Um, my joke about my politics is that I grew up with my parents in New York City. And I mm -hmm. thought that what you did on Sunday was you and 100,000 of your closest friends marched down Fifth Avenue about something. <laughs> so, so that notion that, that you had agency to change the world is something I was privileged enough to grow up with. I, I mean, privilege in all the senses of that. Um, and that's made me, I, I think a lot of UXers in particular, look at the world and go, why is it, why is it so hard, right? And, and what can I do about that? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, when you're lucky, you find a place where uh, it's something you actually care about, not just UX part of it, but the actual thing you're UXing, right? The thing you're designing, that you something you really care about and where you can gain enough expertise to be listened to. Um, and so you get a sort of positive feedback loop on being able to do that. And you learn how to, how to be a, a, gad, a, a positive gadfly. Mm. And Not that I, I don't want to come back. scream about it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you wouldn't be human if you didn't. Let's be honest. It's yeah. a, a big, big job that you're undertaking with the Center for Civic Design. And I do want to come back to this full circle that you've mm -hmm. almost made from your time as a child growing up in New York and being aware of the sort of political movement there and now mm -hmm. where you find yourself and what you're doing professionally. Mm -hmm. but before we do that, I have to ask you this question okay. uh, because it's something that I believe my mother-in-law will be particularly interested in because she, up until recently, was the CEO of the uh, New Zealand Midwifery Council. Mm -hmm. um, and I heard you previously describe UXs as midwives and I was really interested in that analogy. You know, what did you mean by that? A midwife doesn't have a baby. A midwife creates the circumstance in which a woman who is pregnant can have a baby that's a good experience and that's safe. Um, my, my, actually, my, the senior person on my dorm when I was a freshman grew up to become one of the first licensed home nurse midwives in New Jersey. Um, mm -hmm. And had a lot to say about the difference between, you know, having a baby in a hospital and having a baby at home. And it wasn't just the furniture, right? That there's a whole different um, sort of goal and aesthetic about it, and how how you approach the the, the activity. And uh, you know, it's easy to think about, you know, birthing as a big thing, mm. but you know, each interaction is like a little, you know, a, a little event. And um, uh, the goal is not for us to feel great, right? The goal is for someone else to have had a great experience. Mm -hmm. And yeah. where there's a lot of people have something they want to say because you're, you know, the mother-in-law, the mother, right? The mother's mother, right? The rest of the family, <laughs> right? They're all part of the, They're all part of that ecosystem. And uh, so when we focus on, you know, human-computer interaction as hands-on keyboard, we're, mm -hmm. we're not only not only are we forgetting the whole person but we're forgetting the room they're sitting in and the people outside of that room and, um, and all those little threads that you can pull um, to think mm. about that person 
in a, a, a space, you know, in a place in time, in a culture in time. Um, and uh, this all sounds very highfalutin. Um, and so I, I think I think you can think about it very carefully sometimes, like when you're doing early research. Um, and if you've done that research well, then those questions of who all the different people you're designing for are floating around in your head. I mean, that's what we we're trying to do with personas was to create a way mm -hmm. to sort of pin some of that down and make sure that you remember that you're not designing for yourself and you're not just designing for one person, but you're designing for kind of multitudes of people. Um, maybe you're designing a product that's used by a very small group of people and they're pretty homogeneous in some way and, and that in some ways is the easiest thing to do but we have succeeded computers have changed the world right we're all using them that our lives depend on them and now we have everybody's lives in their hands in our hands yeah and i mean your design challenge that you're tackling at the moment which we're about to come to is almost the opposite because there is almost no homogeneous uh, link between everybody that participates in democracy in fact it's kind of fundamental to, to democracy that it, it embraces everybody yeah. of all creeds and, and types yeah. um, the center for civic design and the term civic desi design isn't necessarily something that a lot of people uh, will be overly familiar with so before we get diving into the details mm -hmm. what is civic design um i think civic design is is design that is um I, I don't know, we have a good word for it, but things, right, that happen in the civic space. It's a little different than civic tech, which really is focused on um, using the technologies of UX and, 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 and technology in general in the service of a civic space. But we're really focused on the design side of that. Um, we don't do much. People say, well, can you help us design our, our, our website? And the answer is no, but we'll be happy to help you do the research to understand what you need. Um, so we're we chose design over research because we didn't want to get pegged as a as just a research institute. We're very practical. Um, all of our research mm. is aimed at you know at a, at a goal, uh, but it is all it is all in the civic space. And I think one of the things about working in the civic space is that you don't get to decide which segment of the audience you're going to appeal to. Mm. Now that must make for some interesting challenges. It does and it doesn't. I, actually, in, in some ways, I think what happens is that um, we think about how to make things as seamless and transparent and easy as possible. Um, I mean, we're not the only people doing it. I think the work of the GDS in the UK, when mm -hmm. they think about how do you help someone sign up for carer's allowance, right? Uh, it, it, this person is not there to interact with the computer. They're not there to have fun with it. They're there to affect a change in their life uh, in some way. and um, you know, the transformation of, of government websites uh, across the world is really remarkable. Um, mm. Thinking about how simple can it be, how can we work in plain language, whatever that means in that, in that culture, um, and how can we make it easier for people? I mean, it, it's truly, how can we actually make it usable, right? Because it turns out that um, the way you make something usable for everybody is to make it usable for the most stressed person, the person with the least resources to manage the bumps that we create. And mm. if you can smooth out all those bumps, um, uh, when I worked for National Cancer Institute, uh, there was a lot of, well, you know, doctors are doctors and they can read complicated things. And one of the things I worked on was um, a series on the website called um, Treatment Summaries. 
and they had a, a patient version and a professional version and it would look at the research behind it and how many clinical trials had been done to you know what was the outcomes of those trials uh, for doctors who might be either advising patients or actually prescribing things. There was a much more fancy algorithm for um, work, working through the, the real detailed science, but this was at a reading level. And like many scientific journals, they would say, there have been five clinical trials, blah, 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 semicolon, blah, 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 semicolon, blah, 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 semicolon, <laughs> in a big paragraph. And we said, hmm, what if we put them in bullets? <laughs> And they said, oh, we're afraid that people won't think it actually is scientific enough. If it doesn't look, if it looks too much, if it looks too casual, if it doesn't look official. But the person in charge of this agreed and we mocked it up with some bullets and we did some usability testing with a variety of different kinds of doctors. And I still remember one of them who looked at it and he went, oh my God, National Cancer Institute has discovered the bullet. I, because now you can see that there's five of them because you see five bullets. You can tick through it quickly. You can jump over it if you don't need it. You don't have to parse out this big sentence. And so it's not that he was incapable of reading that paragraph. It's that it was a little extra work for him. And mm. so we've made it a little easier for that doctor to read it, but we've made it a lot easier for a patient to read it who's mm -hmm. not very, maybe not very medically trained, right? And so by making it, um, it sort of lifts all boats, right? And we made it easy for people who are not reading, used to reading medical journals to, to parse through the information. And we've made it faster for people who are. And uh, one person said to us, well, it really helps me make sure I'm not making mistakes because it shows me, you know, which section of this long, long sentence is related to that thing. And I don't have to, you know, separate the commas to figure out what, which, which chunks of words go together. Mm. It sounds like this would have been quite an uh, eye-opening experience for the National Cancer Institute to, to sort of park their need to be seen as overly official and put the, the needs of the user in terms of the understandability, the readability, the learnability of that content to the forefront. That's right. Yeah. Or understanding that an, an oncology nurse might be looking for something on the website, not for herself, but to give to a mm. patient, right? Mm. So there's... And under pressure, like you mentioned, like under, under stress, yeah, where they have 15 minutes between patients and that, you know, so the question is, you know, how can they, how can we maximize those and how can mm. we make sure they don't make an inadvertent mistake, right? All the, all the, all of the design that goes into hospitals and making sure that the right tubes get connected to the right things, right? Mm. Um, we could apply that to information as well. Yeah, I really like that. Now, this wasn't something that you were always involved in. I mentioned in your introduction that you spent 23 years, and I think these are your own words here, as a regular UXer. <laughs> how, how did you move from you know, regular UX into civic design? Like, How did this happen? Well, 2020 happened. Um, you may recall we had a presidential election that year. I've tried and... to blank out the last four years. No, no, this is 20, I'm sorry, 20, 2000, not 2020. 2000. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, I was sorry. going to say. <laughs> two, two twos and two zeros, but no, it was 2000. And um, we had a presidential election that uh, was a contested election in the end. And um, This is Bush-Gore? This is Bush-Gore, where it came yeah. down to a UX problem, right? It was an alignment problem of which little hole went to which little thing. And, but it wasn't, that wasn't the real problem. The real problem was that the actual thing you cast as a ballot was an IBM punch card. And you'd punched holes in something that had no writing on them. So how yeah. are you supposed to translate those, that together? And um, uh, what had happened in Palm Beach County was that the election official uh, 
was doing some reading on her audience, which was largely elderly people. It's a very old county, uh, retirement community. And so she tried to make the text bigger. And in making the text bigger, she forced the, that what's called a butterfly ballot, where there, where were like here's candidate one, candidate two, candidate three, candidate four. And uh, so the real tragedy is that the design mistake she made was made out of good intentions. It was made trying to solve one problem and not being not having a good way to understand the total impact of that. So, you know. I had just been elected myself to the what was then Usability Professionals Association, and they said, "You're going to do outreach. Go do something about elections." <laughs> so, what did you think? Uh, I went to a lot of conferences and listened to talks and read a lot of things. And um, right. and the next thing I knew, I was becoming a bit of an expert because there was so little competition for that role. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and in 2002, there was a law passed called the Help America Vote Act that uh, enabled a lot of things to happen. And one of them was setting up some voting system standards. So, you know, I had been on the, the design standards wars in lots of companies, and now I was on the design standards wars, and, the, uh, and I got nominated to that committee. Um, this is a, the Federal Advisory this is a Board federal that advisory I've read committee. about? Yeah, this is an official mm. Federal Advisory Committee. I wasn't their first choice. I know I know who the first choice was. I mean, I, I, I helped pick what I hope was their first choice. But anyway, they asked me. <laughs> um, and I got to be the chair for what was called Human fact no human Factors and Privacy. So Usability, Accessibility, Privacy Languages. And um, we had a, a, a nine-month assignment to uh, write the draft the first voting system standards for the Election Assistance Commission to approve. They also formed the Election Assistance Commission. It was, mm -hmm. it's kabuki, right? A federal advisor committee is both a lot of hard work and kind of formal theater uh, about what you can do, <laughs> what you can say when, and who can talk to whom, and all of those things. And I thought, great, I'll do my nine months here, and I'll go back to being UX. And I'm still working on, this, on, on voting <laughs> system standards, um, because we're, we just passed, we just approved, uh, the EAC just approved uh, version 2.0, which is the third version. There was a 1.1. And mm -hmm. um, sometimes I look at it and think, wow, we've done some amazing things and we really got to do some good research about it. And sometimes I think we've come so, so pathetically little way from where we were that we're still sort of battling through what understanding the user experience of voting actually is. I think we spent a lot of time on font sizes and things. And, uh, you know, maybe we've gotten them right this time. Maybe we haven't, uh, but we've gotten them mm -hmm. closer. Um, and... It's important because you have to get you have to get the font size right. Sometimes we have to actually read the screen before you can begin to think about what voting means to them. But um, these days, I'm much more interested in the in the sort of bigger social pictures and how those impact things. Mm. Well, lucky you're a patient and persistent person, as we just spoke about. <laughs> yeah. I suppose I... those those qualities will serve you well in this endeavor. Yeah, I mean, you know, we learn things like there's a. A, a program called the National Assessment of Adult Literacy. It's a periodic um, federal, you know, survey of literacy in the country, and um, they they have uh, for narrative for reading just narrative text. They have four things: there's below basic, basic, um, intermediate, and expert. And uh, it's like it's a, it's a bell curve: thirteen percent on the ends, and you know, curves in the middle. And when you add up the numbers, what you see is that 44% of Americans who can read, uh, adults who can read, read at basic or below basic levels. Yeah. 
And it's not just, I, at first I thought, oh my God, what an indictment of the American education system. But mm. it turns out that the, those numbers are actually pretty consistent across the Anglosphere. So Canada, you know, UK, Australia, New Zealand. Um, and it, it's because um, speech, is, speech is innate, right? We, we will leave two babies on an island, they will develop speech if they survive that long. Um, mm -hmm. But reading actually carves new pathways in your brain. And so there's a, a bunch of interesting things about it. One is that once you've learned to read, and you know most of the people I know read at an expert level, um, it's almost impossible to think about what it's like not to be someone who reads because yeah, you've, become, wow. you've, you've become a reader, right? Mm. Uh, it's maybe like being bilingual, right? That you, you can't, it's hard to imagine what it's like to be monolingual if you grew up bilingual um, mm. and vice versa maybe. Um, but it means that there's a huge swath of people who, who get along just fine in daily life, right? Read basic things. But when we ask them then to read a complicated piece of law and vote on it, which sounds like a great, you know, democracy in action, but uh, they're hard and sometimes they're written deceptively, but sometimes they're just written so they're difficult to understand. Um, mm -hmm. So even if we leave, leave out the political issues and the potential for wanting to deceive people into voting one way, um, we're asking people to make some big decisions without giving them enough resources to understand the implications of those decisions. And uh, the usual uh, thing I hear from advocates is, well, let's put more stuff on the ballot. Let's put more words in front of them. Uh, <laughs> let's give them better. more of what they don't understand. Right. Uh, and it's hard to set back and refactor something as big as an election. I mean, uh, hmm. I don't know anybody I know who's been through a big redesign process who hasn't had that moment when you say, why are we calling it this thing, right? Why are we calling it a, a, a partial, you know, backup key? Why aren't we calling it something that's like normal language so people understand it and then doing the really hard work to find the right word that people understand? Um, mm. Again, all those details. Um, mm. So You've said that democracy is a design problem and that seems <laughs> to be quite central to the Center for Civic Design's mission. How is democracy a design problem and how are you working to solve that problem? Yeah. Um, I think we've shifted on this over time. At first we were like, there's just stuff, there's all this stuff, there's these, these ballots and these instructions and these websites and these campaign statements and we could design them better. We could make a better experience. We could make it easier to register to vote by making a well-designed you know, app for, for registering to vote. Mm -hmm. But I think we've come sort of into a much bigger view, which is that it's really a service design problem. It's really a cultural design problem. And that uh, if, you, if you think about it as a, as, a, as a craft or technological challenge, you will improve the usability of the thing, you know, or maybe the beauty of the thing that exists, but you won't have necessarily addressed any underlying real mismatches between, uh, you know, the needs of voters, the needs of election administrators, the needs of campaign, you know, candidates and the needs of society in general. And mm -hmm. um, uh, I'm going to come back to diversity here, which is to say that there's a lovely slogan going around that I really adore, which is that democracy uh, works for us all when it includes us all. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is sort of obvious that if you have a democracy, you actually want everybody to vote. Um, you want everybody to be part of it in some way. And so we've begun thinking about what are the things that keep people from participating, um, not necessarily because someone tr is trying to keep them from voting, but because the way voting is presented keeps them from voting. 
um, mm. and whether that's you know not understanding that you have to register before you can vote or not understanding that you have to be at a certain place at a certain time or a certain day to vote or what the process of voting by mail is and or you know any of the you know you can get those pictures bigger and bigger and bigger right uh, to keep asking those why it's like you know laddering the five whys you know why 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 until you until you're really looking at democracy itself um, well let's talk about democracy itself let's do that let's zoom out and look at the bigger picture you know why is it important for democracies across the world to make it easy for their citizens to understand and to participate in government services and events like elections um if you don't think that that the, that your government works for you in some way, you don't have a stake in it. And if you don't have a stake in it, you're either cast out of that that belonging, or you and at, at some point you begin to resent it, and and it and that mm. problem gets worse and worse and worse, right? So if you don't feel that uh, in your town that you look at the town council and there's anybody from your community there, whatever, however you design, define community, whether it's women, whether it's race, race or ethnicity, whether it's language, whether it's part of town, right? If we exclude mm -hmm. people, um, we've basically said, you're not part of democracy. You're, you are actually subjects, right? And we, 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 we who are democracy are effectively your rulers. Um, and that's mm -hmm. not, uh, I don't think it's very good for society. I don't think it, uh, without even appealing to, you know, it's, it's just not what democracy means. I think it actually creates an unstable society. And, you know, there are some... And, and that's what we're no, living in. Go. And that's what we're living mm. in right now, is an, is an unstable society of people who've said, enough. You know, there are some people that will say, why should we invest money and resources in making democracy more accessible to people, whether they be really poor people or disabled people or mm -hmm. recent migrants, you know, why, why should we invest and spend all this money making it accessible to them? What would you, what would you say to those people? Well, my first challenge is how much money are we really, are you, are you actually spending? It's actually no harder to make something that's usable than it is to make something mm. that isn't, right? If you're picking where vote centers should be cited, um, is it really harder to actually think about the map and where people actually live and how they get there and make sure that things are on transit routes? Maybe, maybe it takes a little bit more time, but not orders of magnitude more. I think the one thing that does cost more money is language access, which we have in the United States. If there's a sufficient density of people who um, don't speak English well and do speak a specific other language, we require um, materials to be in that language. Mm -hmm. I actually think that that is one of the stepping stones to civic engagement, to being really engaged as a citizen. Um, I was talking to a young woman who had just become a citizen. She was Chinese, she had a baby, her husband worked in a tech company. And we asked if she was registered to vote and she said, not yet, I, I know I have to do it, but I have so many other things. I have the baby, I have the apartment, I have to learn how to shop in a new place and, and I'll get there. And I think part of it is that her English wasn't great, right? And that mm. we were actually talking to her in, I mean, I wasn't talking to her in Chinese, but I had someone with me who was speaking to her in Chinese, and we were going back and forth between English and Chinese, um, uh, Mandarin actually. And um, uh, you could see that if she had to struggle through reading all of this in English, it was going to be a lot on top of everything else that was a lot. And so if we could make it easier for her to understand the steps she needed to take to be a voter, in fact, if we could reduce those those steps entirely, I'll get to that in a minute. 
um, then we're actually inviting her in um, to being a citizen, to being a full-fledged citizen, not just someone who's just passed, you know, just taken the naturalization ceremony. And so we've begun thinking about everything we do as invitations. Um, you know, that are we inviting people to take the next step? Um, mm -hmm. There's a, a thing we're doing with voting by mail, which is that in some place, in some states, if you pack your ballot up and you send it back and you've neglected to sign it or something like that, they will get in touch with you and you have a chance to come in and fix that. Uh, and it's a great program, except that not many people take them up on it. Mm -hmm. um, partly because sometimes it happens after election day and the election's been called, so there's a little disincentive. Or maybe it just looks like a hassle and you did your thing and you're done and what? So we started mm -hmm. thinking about how you can reframe this. Like, we really want your vote to count. It's not hard. A lot of other people might make these mistakes too. That's why we have this program. So um, here's the steps you need to take. And then how easy can we make them? Do we have to, you know, do you have to get on a bus and go downtown? Um, do you have to trust the U.S. mail that's going to get you someplace in time? Or could you pick up your phone and scrawl your signature? No, hopefully not scrawl it, but carefully write your signature and send it in uh, via, you know, via, via the internet. Right? Is there is a way to use technology to connect people more easily? Is there a way to invite them to do it? Is there a way to make the whole process easier for them um, so that they're more likely to say yes to that? Because we know that participation is a habit. Mm -hmm. And it's you know it's it's for you know you're creating those muscles all the things about behavioral science right and to think about how you how you create those little little habits that build up into bigger habits like that. Mm. You know you mentioned something earlier on where you sort of touched on that there might be some incentive in the system to disincentivize participation or. Um, change the tools or the artifacts that are used in elections, uh, whether it's just the wording of a particular vote that uh, you're asking people yeah. to cast in a way that favours you know, one group over another, how much of bad civic design in the United States of America is intentional or by design? I actually think very little of it is by design. I think there's some policy that may have been well-intentioned but has disparate impact. And I think this year we're seeing things that are definitely um, aimed at reducing the ability to vote. Um, and, and I, but I think it also just takes reframing it. You think, well, let's, 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 have, let's have drop boxes, right? Our counties are, our elections are run at the county. Let's have a drop box in every county. Seems fine, right? Hmm. But I live in a county of 17,000 people or so, a very small county, and there's really one downtown. And so, you know, having the drop box there seems adequate and what, what little public transportation we have will get you close to it. Uh, but Houston, <laughs> you know, Baltimore, they're very different places and one Dropbox for that size city is a very different, a very different question. And so we're, we're not asking the question uh, as we create policy who is, who is left out. And so I try to, we, we're nonpartisan, we stay out of the political wars, um, mm. but we do believe that whatever policy has been voted on, um, every voter deserves a good implementation of that policy. They deserve to understand it. They deserve to, to know how to vote within it. Um, and uh, occasionally that means that we support policy that we don't agree with, but at least we can make it easier for them to, to actually do it. And it does make mm -hmm. a difference. Um, I, have some, I have some stats for you if you want some numbers. Um, yeah, please. Uh, in Michigan, 
uh, they went to no excuse absentee. We helped them re revise their, their ballot envelopes. Detroit wasn't included in this, but most of the rest of the state went. And they went from, they went from 0.49%, so just about uh, half a percent um, of unsigned envelopes to 0.06%. Mm. Now, it wasn't just the envelopes. This is really important. It's that there was a whole campaign around the fact that they had no excuse absentee. Uh, it was it was a new envelope. It made people look at it fresh um, again. And we did we spent a lot of time thinking about what what could somebody do that would um, invalidate their vote. Right. I mean, this is an election tragedy. Someone requests a ballot, gets the ballot in the mail, votes, the marks the ballot, gets the ballot in the envelope, sends it back, and it's not counted. There is that mm -hmm. is an election tragedy. So how, what are the things that keep that from happening? And everything about our design is focused on two things. One is pointing people to the things they have to do on that envelope to make sure that it gets counted. And the second is helping election officials process it better. So it's, we've, it, it's a very simple design. I mean, there's really nothing much to it, but it's got a, a blue stripe on the envelope that's going towards the voter. And it's got a different color stripe on any other envelope that's got a ballot in it that's heading back to the election office. Right. So it helps U.S. Postal Service. Um, it helps if you're looking at a heap of ballots that have just been dropped off. You know, you know the, the the beige ones. You know, the tan ones are from overseas, and the purple ones are your are these voters, and the red ones are people who had a replacement ballot, and you have to make sure you have that. You know, that sort of thing. So it helps mm -hmm. it helps process those ballots faster. So it's a it's it's a kind of little mini machine, but it's also designed to be recognizable in your stack of mail. Right? That when you know you go to the one of the election officials I talked to who's talked about the ten, the ten second trip from the, from the from the mailbox to the, to the to the kitchen trash can and can it survive that trip and not just get dumped out with the other with the other garbage, um, and all the junk mail that comes in. Yeah, it sounds like you've been really intentional with that design. It's obviously made a big difference. Whitney, in twenty seventeen, you said. I live in a country with some of the worst turnout for elections in the world, but that's not just elections, it's the worst engagement with government. It's the worst sense that government is our government, even though it's the promise of America. We've lost that promise somehow. Do you still feel that way? I do. I, I do think that that if we think that democratic elections are the core of our society, then people not participating is a sign of illness. Um, I think this year, well, 2020, was kind of an amazing year in so many ways. Mm. Um, people used to ask why, why the turnout is so bad. Well, for one thing, we vote for a lot of things. We have a lot of elections compared to most other countries. Um, mm -hmm. And that's just a challenge. Um, we vote for things like surveyor in some places. Uh, as, as one voter said to me, isn't that a job that you hire somebody for, right? Why is this something I'm electing, right? And how do I know if they're any good, right? Um, so we're asking people to make a lot of decisions. And I think, but when it, and so I think often we don't vote because it doesn't matter that much. We think, yeah, one surveyor, another surveyor. But it turns out that when it matters, we, we show up. And that's what happened last year. Mm -hmm. um, it was very clear that it mattered, that it mattered on many, many levels, and people did show up, and lots of people showed up. And it wasn't just one demographic that showed up, it wasn't just one party that showed up, everybody showed up. And uh, elections rose to the occasion. I mean, they ran a pretty near flawless election in, you know, a pandemic, hurricanes, 
you know, just everything that could possibly, you know, not security not be, risks, security risks. Um, just, you know, uh, I remember talking to a, an election official in a city that was having demonstrations at the time, and he was in the basement of City Hall. The City Hall was closed. It was summer. Um, the, 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 there was no air conditioning. The lights were off in the rest of the building. There were police barricades all the way around the building, and he was trying to run an election. Mm -hmm. Right. And they, we came through. We came through that. And I think that, to me, is sort of the glimmer of hope. What's happening now is not so much a glimmer of hope, and I hope it's just a little pendulum thing. But in the midst of all this, there was a working group assembled by some people from Harvard's Ash Center and uh, Brookings Institution, Brookings Center, looking mm. at universal voting, which is, uh, if you're from Australia, you know that you are required to vote. Um, and if you don't, you have to pay a small fine or have an mm -hmm. excuse. And very few people take them up on that. Um, it just is a habit of the idea that everyone should vote. And I have to say, when I was invited to be in this working group, I thought, never going to happen. I mean, this is, there's so many things we have to do to get there. And uh, we sort of agreed that, that before you can start talking about universal voting, you have to actually be very close to it, right? Because you can't take that big a leap. And that means you have to have good voter registration. You have to use all the tools of government to, to keep up with people. We have something called the National Voter Registration Act. It was passed in the 90s, uh, mm. also called Motor Voter. Uh, and the mm -hmm. idea was that what, what, what does almost everybody do? You get your ID or your driver's license at the motor vehicle's office. So why don't we register you right there? We're getting your date of birth, your address, you know, getting all these things. We're actually going to see your ID um, because it becomes, you know, a de facto ID. And why don't we, why don't we register people there? And it was a great idea. But in the 90s, saying we're going to register voters meant either asking them if they wanted to have a piece of paper mailed to them or handing them a piece of paper. Right. But now we can just say, is it okay? We're going to update your address. And so in uh, mm. 20 some states, we have some form of automated voter registration. In Colorado, um, they started with, it, it, they ask you the question and you have to say, no, I, you know, I don't want to be registered. So we flipped it from an opt-in to an opt-out. And then they said, well, they discovered that 20% of people who opt out and who were registered, who were eligible to vote and were registered actually had changed their address and, and hadn't taken advantage of this opportunity to just have that happen. So they said, well, being registered, we'll treat that as the, um, as the opt-in and we'll update mm. your address. Um, they, you know, and now they're doing it back in. So they actually just take everybody, if, if they can determine that you're eligible to vote, uh, they know your age, if you've shown some, you know, some sort of ID that shows that you're a citizen. Um, and they send you a card that says, by the way, you know, we just added you to the voting rolls. If this isn't right, you know, here's the data. If this isn't right, let us know. Um, mm. Oregon, again, Oregon started this. Um, they were a leader in that as well. And the states are in various places in adopting this. But in four years, we've gone from maybe five years, we've gone from one state to uh, almost half the states um, having automated automated registration. I think that the mental model for a you know an average everyday person is that you look at that capital with the big dome. And under that dome, there's a big computer and all the little government agencies use that computer. And so, of course, if they told what agency where they live, why doesn't the other one know? And they don't get that agencies are fragmented and they run their own systems and the systems are 150 years old. And, you know, they don't understand all of that. So I think we're actually beginning to make government work the way people expect government to work, not in a big brother sort of way, but in a taking care of easy business. Right.
So we need that. We need it to be possible for people to vote easily. We need it, you know, we need all sorts of things. We need voting to be accessible. Then we can begin to talk about, um, you know, setting an expectation that everyone will in fact participate. Um, and uh, it was very interesting watching, you know, thinking about the constitutional challenges and the legal challenges and the policy challenges and would this, who would this hurt and who would it benefit. But in the end, um, all the work that we're doing about wanting to make make the, the friction against voting, you know, to reduce that friction, to, to drop the little barriers that come along. And we do think they're little barriers. It's not, it's not usually one big giant barrier. It's usually a series of missed opportunities. Um, little thing that was a little too hard. I had to wait in line. I didn't have a stamp. I didn't, and all these mm. things just add up to someone not quite voting. And we know there's social bias against it because more people report to the census that they voted in the last election than the total turnout. So I think that people want to vote. They just mm. are being nibbled to death by ducks, you know, by the little, by the little, the little barriers that keep them from voting. Uh, a researcher named Kate Contreras did a really wonderful project, or letter project, that came up with this idea of the, the interested bystander. It's not that people are disengaged, watching go by and when there's something that they think is important they'll step in whether that's you know youth tennis or electing a school board member mm -hmm. um, but if things are ticking along okay they might just let no, let somebody else take care of it and so the question is how do we how do we change that attitude to say no we really we kind of want to hear from you mm. well let's let's give people listening a practical example which i know that you're really closely tied to and I suspect quite proud of and that's in California I believe as a result of some research that you led there was a law that was passed I believe it's law 306 could you tell us a little bit about that law and how that came to be as well as the difference that passing that law has made for the citizens that it represents or it relates to oh, this is a funny one it's um so California has a, a voter bill of rights. It's actually a very good bill of rights. Ten, ten things. They're all they're all good things. It was carefully hammered out. We were working on a project to. They also require both the counties and the state to send voter guides to every. Um, the state sends it to every household. The county sends it to every registered voter. Um, uh, the, the the project had a fancy name. Uh, How voters get information, but we called it. You know. Uh, do the trees that die to make these guys have they given their lives in vain right <laughs> so if we're going to spend all of that time and money and resources and effort and trees to get a pile of paper and in Cal in san francisco this this county voter guide can be 100 pages on newsprint mm. right so we're not talking about small things here um uh can we make them actually work for voters uh and so we were crisscrossing the state doing research and in our last round of research we were in berkeley at an adult literacy center. So we're working with working adults who are still learning to read. Hmm. Uh, Dana Chisnell, with whom I founded the center, was actually conducting this session. And um, we had, uh, the Voter Bill of Rights had, we, we'd left it out of our first version because we thought um, it's the sort of thing that hangs on a wall and does anybody read it? And people started saying, no, this is important. And mm -hmm. so we put it in the back of the book and people said, no, 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 it doesn't go in the back of the book. This is really important. It's got to go in the front. And we're like, should it be right inside the front cover? Oh, no, no, that's, I want to know who's, who's running the election. Not the next page. That's the table of contents, but right after that. Mm -hmm. And so she was working with a gentleman and he 
got to that page and he read it very slowly and very carefully, very seriously. And she asked the question that we asked next, which is, did you learn anything new? You know, what did you learn here? Is there anything that was surprising to you? And he said, I think this says I can vote. He'd been in prison when he was young. He'd gotten out. Uh, it'd been liberalized since then, right? So in, in that intervening mm -hmm. time, his rights had been restored to him, but he had to act on it. Uh, nobody went and looked him up and figured out where he was living. And we were had a legal and voters person with us. And she whipped out her laptop and registered to vote on the spot, right? <laughs> Not one to miss an opportunity. Um, she was very proud of the number of people she'd registered. And she told that, and, and, and so we started thinking about what were the things that tripped people up on it? What, you know, was it too hard to read? Why did it take them so long? And she told that story at a legislative hearing. And mm -hmm. someone said, well, we should be able to write all this stuff in plain language. And they said, well, you know, that's always a big number. Why don't we just focus on this one document at first? And um, then Secretary of State Padilla was, was behind this as well. And so we uh, started working on the text. We worked closely with the Secretary of State's office. And in a, uh, what they did was we did what we called usability testing and they called community review because they're required mm -hmm. to do community review. Uh, we did them as intercepts. We went out and uh, with the Secretary of State staff, with someone from the League of Women Voters, uh, uh, tried it out with 80 people in the course of two days, um, crisscrossing town, going to community centers and places like that, libraries and homeless encampments and all kinds of things, uh, and uh, came up with a version that we liked. And they did, you know, a little more, you know, f official comment perioding of it, and uh, came up with a version that is that hangs in every single polling place. That is actually not a huge impact um, when you think about it. We designed, you know, we, we redesigned a poster basically. Hmm. But here's the impact that it had was that all the people we worked with in the, um, there's a, a there's, we, our, our project was through a group called the Future of California Elections. And their goal was to bring together state and county election officials with get out the vote advocates, with good government advocates, with language access people, with disability rights people, and get them all working on making California elections work again uh, so that we hmm. collaborated on, on things together. And so we, are we were, because we were, you know, on a research grant from them, we were doing regular reports to people and we were talking about it and several of them came and helped us, you know, a lot of the members of that group helped us set up places. We piloted things with some of the election offices. And uh, to me, the the moment when I knew we'd, we'd sort of, uh, we'd, we'd done something good was at one of their annual conferences. The there's a comp they, they, there's a, a slightly complicated thing about California voting that has to be explained in the voter guide and it was hard and we had done a bit of it, but they had carried that work on and I had been looking at what, what they had on the website just you know, so I'd be prepared to talk to them. And someone came up and said, what do you think? And I, I went over and I looked at it and it was like, it was really good. And they said, we're so glad we did everything you used to do. We, we, we really tried to like channel all the things that you were, were teaching us. <laughs> and so it, it sort of changed the attitude in a Secretary of State's office of largest state in the country, one of the largest states in the country. And, and that filters down to the county elections, it filters down to every voter. Um, and that is the beginning or part of a shift from an attitude of we're having an election show up to actually making an election that invites participation. Because it, you know, we could design everything beautifully and it's not gonna change it, but we can change people's people can see that 
beautifully designed things make a difference to voters and that it makes it, it makes their life easier and that um, they get props for it and um, that begins to change the election culture. Mm. I mean just how important is it to involve these stakeholders, these elected officials and the people that run these uh, these political bodies or these these civic bodies in the process of research and design you know how important is oh, that? It's critical. It's just critical. We started because we wanted to make things better for voters. Uh, what we very quickly figured out was that all the things that we were trying to make better came from someplace, and the place they come from is called the election office, right? So we actually, most of our work is actually with election officials. Um, uh, we're now getting, you know, sometimes we knock on the door and say, won't you let us help us do it? But often they call us and say, something's happened. They might say, there's been a law change and we have to redesign things and can you help us do it better? So we put out a lot of toolkits and samples and things because there's not so, only so many of us. Um, mm. And then we realized that a lot of the things that made it hard for them to make, make things good were because the policy was written in a clumsy way or because it wasn't a great policy. Sometimes it's just written badly. Right? Mm. Or requires, you know, it's got, it, the law has text in it that says, and they shall sign a statement that says, you know, um, <laughs> and instead of saying it something that people might understand, they've said something that's just complicated and, long and mm. big and makes it hard. And so we began thinking about where are the policy barriers. Now we're a 51c3, which is a kind of nonprofit. We don't do lobbying, but we can point out. <laughs> Um, mm. when, when there are barriers to that. So we did a paper last year. Um, Sean Asano Johnson is now working for us, a linguist, came in. And we looked mm -hmm. at all the little oaths that you have to sign, the little statements that voters have to sign on the back of their absentee ballot envelope. And while I don't like grade level, we looked at how hard it was to read, how many words was it, how, many, how packed it was, you know, how hard those words were. And we mm. started trying to unpack it. What, what was the simplest thing we could do? Well, it turns out bullets was the first step. And then we could shorten some, take out some of the noise words. And in three or four steps, we could get, to, without changing the policy or the law or the intent of that statement, we could get to something that instead of skewing towards, you know, requiring a postgraduate degree to read it, would skew towards being normal everyday people, you know, over to the, mm. the lower end of literacy. Because if we're asking you to sign something that says, yes, I'm who I am and I've done the right things and I've done anything right, what good is that signature if you don't understand what you've just signed? Yeah. In some big, deep metaphysical way, right? Um, so if we take seriously the meaning of that voter's oath or that voter's statement, then we, we should be making it understandable. Mm. And so we yeah, start you pointing... Should, you shouldn't need a lawyer there to help you interpret what it is that you're signing yourself up for. That's right. So, you know, we, we don't... We have... Like, like many usability people, we don't have a lot of power, but we have a lot of persuasive tools. And um, we don't have to work with every election official, we just have to work with enough election officials. So let's talk about these election officials. They're obviously quite an important part in making civic design experiences, I wouldn't say, or maybe I would say enjoyable, but at the very least usable. Mm -hmm. What do we know about the design of the status quo and how when that's not good it affects the well-being of the people that are put in those positions to administer the civic experience you know do we what do we know if anything about that well what we know is that when things are hard to use 
uh, two things happen. People use them wrong, or they do something, they, they do something wrong with them, and they complain about it. <laughs> um, so if you can reduce, I mean, you know, there's more attention to election administration than there used to be. So MIT has something called the Election Performance Index that looks at a number of measurable indicators, and uh, creating a little healthy competition isn't a bad thing. Um, mm. uh, I think uh, the other thing is that when someone is administering a, a, an office that is difficult to engage with, then I think you get a, a sort of circle the wagons mentality because you you know in your heart I, you do a usability test for somebody you know they know there's problems right but they haven't quite admitted that to themselves and so part of what usability testing does is sort of bring a big mirror in and say <laughs> yeah you know I, back when I worked in, in commercial thing I would all, I, projects I would also say well what do you, before I would do my report I would say well what do you think is wrong and I'd ask the people to write it down in some post-it notes and I'd collect them so no one had to say it out loud and they knew they knew what the problems were so um, if you're if you're if you're trapped in a situation where you've got an, a, a, a creaky system and you've inherited you know a lot of a lot of why things are the way they are in many places especially elections is that that's the way they, they were so I still the way they are you know, we just or I don't know how to make it better or I don't know mm -hmm. I know this and so you, you tend to circle the wagons and then you start seeing your voters as the other right instead of seeing them as as your your, your people and uh, that's never good for anybody. Um, I think uh, we're about to see a lot of election officials leave the, the industry, and it's mm -hmm. really a tragedy because um, th they did a good job. But I think they're starting to say, uh, "I didn't sign up for death threats." Yeah. You know, and so uh, there's a, there's a counter case to what you're doing, which is that they did everything right, and they're still not really being believed. But uh, I think that uh, when you a county clerk and a county clerks are often also the election officials um, in a small thing said look in in, in, in a big city uh, the number of people who complain or get things wrong it's sort of, it's a it's a number at a call center right because you're mm. big but when someone comes in to complain to me they are standing across the counter from me and they're yelling at me mm. right and so I think there's a thing that happens in small counties which is they're very close to at least some of their voters maybe not all of them because they may mm. not have thought about it. Um, but the bigger the jurisdiction is, the, the creakier the bureaucracy tends to be, the more the harder it is to they, they're more underfunded often. Um, well, everybody's underfunded in elections. Um, but it, it just makes it harder to be the kind of office you want to be. And so when I see cities, especially the big cities, starting to make these strides, like hiring people who actually know communications to be a communications person, not just hiring someone and saying your job is communications um, mm. that they're beginning to really think about how they use social media how they use other outreach tools um, you know it's great it's great seeing that and so one of the things that I you know when when they get you know everybody responds to praise things go well you get told you did something right you know you smile a little bit and you try a little harder the next time and creating those virtuous cycles I think is really important and so one of the things we were sort of pitching about maybe not formal usability testing, but some sort of reaching out to the people who will use something and having a quick quick check on it before you do it. Um, mm. It means that you're less likely to have people mad at you.
And so and then you're, mm. you can do the good things you want to do because you're not spending time defending yourself or you're not spending time doing regard actions against being fired, for instance. Um, mm. Some of that anger that those officials have experienced recently doesn't really seem to be pegged to any realm of uh, reality, at least not that I can discern from way over here on the other side of the world in New Zealand. From yeah. your experience in and around election officials and the apparatus of democracy, mm-hmm. how hard is it to commit election fraud? It's very hard. Um, and why is pers- that? Well, in-person election fraud is vanishingly rare, partly because um, it's it, it's resource intensive, right? Maybe you can add one more vote, but um, I, I worked as a poll worker in a very small 5,000 person town. Um, I was a newcomer, I'd only been there 30 years, you know, um, that kind of town. And, yeah, right. Um, it was like it was like a town council meeting, right? The the, the what one person I worked the table with ran the the sort of sports events, and the other person was on the planning commission, and everybody was something, right? Except me, right? Mm. I was just I just lived there. No, there was a couple of us, and it, and people knew each other. The number of people who walked up to to our table to be to check in to vote, who were who were addressed by their first name, was really high, um, and so. Think about how hard it would be to commit in-person impersonation fraud in that context, and and really, um, polling places were small communities, right? There were people who knew people, and there are people watching. I mean, the the candidates are allowed to send people to sort of observe and make sure that things are are going well. But even if you sort of challenge that statement. Um, there was a project that some people who believed in voter fraud uh, ran. So they looked for signs that people had voted twice and things like that. And they examined literally millions of records and they found 12 potential examples of which most of them were just mistakes. Like someone was registered in two places, but they hadn't actually voted because they had moved and never taken their name off the rolls. So yeah. it, it's, it's really rare. Um, mm. Election fraud is less rare. Uh, so North Carolina, where uh, someone was collecting ballots from people and marking them themselves, and, and mm-hmm. they actually threw out the election and reran it, um, and people went to jail for it. But that was that's not an individual voter fraud. That's election fraud. They're quite different. Um, we have a lot the differences in, in terms of the in, the intent and the scale. No, who's doing it? Mm, okay. Right. And who Ele- was doing it in that example? Uh, the can- a campaign for one of the candidates. Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so mm. you know those those things do happen, um, and uh, but they also get caught. Interesting. You know, we know about this because because they got caught. Um, and mm. so you know one one one. It, it, but if people understood that that piece of paper and that envelope they'd handed them was their official ballot, and that they shouldn't, you know, they should be licking that envelope and closing it up before they hand it to them. Um, mm. If it was easier to send back, if you didn't need a stamp. Right. If you didn't need their assistance, so you can think about where are the places where we've created friction that allow um, bad actors to, to slip in. Mm. So, if someone was listening to this and they might might be on the fence at the moment in terms of the integrity of the American election system, what would you say to them? I'd say that in general, it's it, it's pretty good. I think that there are there is a lot of work to do to bring these big systems into the twentieth twenty first century. Um, 
uh, I've done a lot of work on automatic registration, which means working with Department of Motor Vehicles, and they think election people have a lot of money because they are they are our de facto ID card, right? Mm. And they're working with systems that were built in the 50s, mm. right? This is no way to run a country. Um, uh, infrastructure is, is a big deal. I mean, you know, when bridges fall down, when computer systems fail, um, when you just can't make the systems do what they need to do, um, you know, if, if we were a poor country, that would be one thing. So, I, But I think that there's actually pretty good integrity in the elections itself, themselves. Um, and... Uh, you know, in Arizona, where this, this sort of Senate audit is going on, those ballots have been audited four times already. Um, mm. There are there are there are procedural safeguards from beginning to end. Mm. Um, we are getting better at making those more universal, um, which means that there's less opportunity for mistakes, let alone election fraud. Um, mm. You know, boxes of ballots that just get shoved in the corner and don't get counted, not because someone's trying to hide them, but because they're just in a messy room, I and mean, this is no good. Um, and I think there's a, a, a lot of work on sort of professionalizing the profession. Um, and I think that's important because until you're in control of your work, you can't, until you're running a good election, you can't do the real work, which is supporting democracy. Mm. Um, it's, you know, it's a little like if you're in a company that sells something and you're being overwhelmed by tech support calls. Um, you can't you can't get on to innovating or doing the next step because you're still catching up with the problems that are left over from that first version that was rushed into production, without either making it technically perfect perfect or understanding what users were going to want. Mm. You, you touched on this briefly before. You, you sort of mentioned that these institutions aren't really known for their uh, love of change and I understand in New York there was a problem with the instructions on the lever machines that took four sessions which is eight years to resolve you know why do even seemingly simple and obvious issues that prevent people from correctly participating in democracy why do these take so long to resolve if I knew that I'd be president um, <laughs> I, I think it, it's just it's a big boat that turns slowly, and I find this very frustrating. Um, mm. It wasn't lever machines. The, the situation I'm thinking about was paper ballots. Um, okay, right. Uh, there was um, a huge number of overvotes. That is, people who mistakenly voted twice in the same contest, and that disqualifies your vote in that contest, uh, coming mm. from uh, some deep precincts in the South Bronx, and. Uh, I got involved with this sort of as a design expert for some advocates, and um, we, we did a bunch of work around this. And but the and they kept saying, "Well, can this be right?" And so they started looking, like not just for president, but they looked up and down the ballot, and they saw, you know, really huge numbers, like the same mistake made over and over again. And um, one thing people started saying is, "Well, how do we know that people didn't just not understand how to vote?" Okay. Uh, but. No one let them look at the at the actual paper ballots, which had been carefully stored for just this purpose, because they're not a public record, and so they couldn't gain access to them until it happened mm -hmm. again. And then finally, someone did an investigation and discovered that it was um, the, it was actually the the scanner, the the, count, the tally machines, right? That mm -hmm. at, it was in an old school with weird power, and as the day wore on, they started misbehaving. And I think what, his, what happened is this, a voter would go in, they'd put their ballot in, it would say, you've overvoted, and they'd look at it and they'd say, this ballot is fine. 
and they put it in again. They'd say you've overvoted, and they call over the poll worker, and they'd all puzzle over this ballot. And <laughs> the poll worker would say, "Well, just press the button that says it's okay, cast it anyway." And I think their mental model was it went in a separate bin, and someone would look at it later. Mm. But that isn't what happened, and we're just, uh, I mean, had it been within the margin of victory, they would have, but mm. uh, it wasn't enough votes to make a difference, and so no one looked at it, and so a group of people in an impoverished area of the South Bronx voted on machines that weren't counting their ballots. Uh, and Brennan Center for Justice did a look at, look at some of this and discovered that there was, in fact, an overlay between socioeconomic status and overvotes. Um, mm. And so you start to think about that. Uh, the, 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 the instructions on the back of the machines were based on the old, over, the old lever machines. On the back of the ballots were based on the old lever machines, which were described in, a, in very fine detail in the law. And so it said that you should use the, the lever above and to the left. And you know, but we're now in a different place. The only saving grace was that they were written. It was written in six-point type on the back of the ballot. No one actually read <laughs> so it. No one could read it. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. And, and it did finally get changed. The law did finally get resolved. But it, it came up, it passed the assembly, uh, the state assembly, three or four times and before it, it even was brought up in the Senate. And it was because the people who were in office, they got elected on the old rules. Uh, mm. And everybody's always afraid of opening up the election law because they're afraid that something will be snuck in that won't be good for them. And so there's a lot of suspicion around that. So... Mm. Uh, Getting getting um, people to think carefully about uh, how and when you can revise election law and what should be in the law and what should be in regulation it's it's a tough problem. But you know people think well we we're we're going to hash it out in this you know back room and we want it we want all the ballots to say exactly the right thing. But even New York is beginning to change. Um, in mm -hmm. August, August is very late to do anything for a November election, right? In August mm -hmm. is like the day before the election, because literally <laughs> ballots have to be mailed about September something to overseas voters. Um, they started talking about maybe they should update their envelopes and we got called in. And they thought, well, we'll just we'll put out some templates that are slightly better and we'll see if anybody takes them up. But lots of things were happening. This is the middle of the pandemic. And Governor Cuomo signed an executive order that said that everybody, that there should be a uniform ballot envelope design for all of New York State. Now that goes from the English only counties to the Queens, mm. where they have to put five languages on the ballot on the envelope. It's a lot of lot of lot of ink to put on that real estate of an envelope. But we did it. It was it was a lot of compromise. It is a the state board has a Democrat and a Republican, and it's you know even in that environment we got it done, and uh, it was kind of astonishing. I mean I've never seen elections move that fast and have it not break something. Um, the numbers, are, these numbers are more shocking, or not quite as shocking as they sound because when New York counts things, but in the primary, New York City uh, had pro said that 20 plus percent of the vote by mail ballots they received has some defect and couldn't be counted. Mm -hmm. On November 9th, so shortly after the November election, uh, the Board of Elections tweeted out that their current status was that they had 4% of ballots that were about to be rejected, but but over half of them, and almost half of them had a problem that could be fixed and we had a cure law and people could come and fix them. So that number was only going to get better. So mm -hmm. we went from 20% rejected ballots to 4% rejected ballots uh, between June and November. That's huge. That's huge, Whitney. Yeah. What a great thing for New York democracy. Yeah. Um, they're launching. Must feel ranking. pretty good. It does feel really great. And we've, and we've maintained a relationship with them. So we're, mm. they're, they're launching ranked choice voting. 
uh, we were working with the what's called the campaign finance board, but they do the voter education work and with Common Cause, who were an advocates for this change and with the Board of Elections and sort of working on doing research on you know, how to explain this kind of complicated way of voting. Um, anybody from Australia, we know it's not that complicated, but it feels complicated here. Um, mm. But, you know, how to explain it. And one of the things that we kept saying is you guys have to use all the same words. Right, because you can't describe it in different ways. People get suspicious; they don't know why it's different, and they've mm. kind of adopted that. And they're and they're amazingly, um, uh, they are working. Well, I don't know if they're working together, but they're at least uh, focused on being consistent in the message. And that's just, it's such a huge, a huge shift. Um, mm. uh, and it's because they have a high-profile election coming up, and it's going to be for their boss, right, the mayor. So. Yeah. Yeah, and it's an exceedingly measurable outcome that you're able to deliver through these UX improvements to how people vote. It's really, it's really fantastic to hear you've been able to affect that change. So thinking about where civic design in the United States is currently and the work that you've been doing to get it to that place, what is your greatest hope over the coming years for where it might go? I would love for every government office, every especially every election office to start with, but really every government office, and um, to to be thinking about how they're presenting the information and the interactions that they manage. Um, uh, I, I'd love to see them having uh, some really good guide, you know, to, following guidelines so that they're thinking about what that experience is and considering that part of their job. Um, mm. I'd love to have some tr real training. Uh, you mentioned that in the introduction that we teach the election design course and part of the certificate on election administration. And it's great. We're, we're just finishing a semester of it. We had uh, two Secretary of State, people from the Secretary of State's office, two people you know, from the state level, two people from county offices, and a bunch of people who want to grow up to be election officials, and some advocates all working together and sort of thinking about, we make them do usability tests, we make them try to rewrite things, we make them experiment with things. Um, it's very hands-on, it's, it's a remote class, but it's very studio-ish. Um, and they may never be great designers, but they will have some idea that there is great design, and they will have some the ability to recognize good design when they see it and and the desire to want it uh, and i think that will lead to things like hiring you know a digital a digital communications manager who knows how to make websites and, and social media work who knows how to use all the all the language of design um, mm -hmm. to communicate and so my hope is that it becomes just an obvious skill that every office is going to have or have access if to and if people are listening from those offices to this episode, then I believe you have on your website, the Centre's website, you've got some excellent field guides for ensuring voter intent that they're able to download. We do. And actually, they exist in paper form. Mm -hmm. um, we think they've been successful because they're just so darn cute. Um, <laughs> they're, everything's it's like 10 tips, all illustrated. Mm. What's behind them is a big heap of research in every case, not always our research, right? Somebody's research. And uh, we have a, a name for a big pile of really good meaty research reports. We call them a doorstop. Because <laughs> uh, they don't they get put in the pile, the guilt pile, and they don't get read. And so we started writing briefs. Uh, Dana came up with the idea of these little scout books. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not everything to know about designing usable ballots or accessible. It's sort of the 10, 
10 things you can do that will make a difference. And so we think it's, it's about building up those habits. If you can get into the little habits, you can then next year you can use a bigger habit. Because the nice thing about government elections is they just keep on going. There's mm. always another election. So you can try something. In fact, we urge them not to do things that are too big at once, right? To build mm. it up over time, serious, serious little changes. Um, try it out with your with voters. Make sure you're right. Um, and, you know, to make make that basic decent design what we expect things to look like my last question which is an incredibly serious one and something that happens in most uh, countries in fact not just democracies more often than elections is needing to pay one's taxes mm -hmm. can we ever make that a delightful experience um sure why not i mean one way you could do it is by not is by making it making making it less complicated, right? Mm. In the UK, for instance, most average wage earners don't file taxes at all because they've done pay as you go, pay as you earn, right? Mm. Um, yeah, no, the, the IRS tries and state, state tries, but I think uh, we have a long way to go because of our fragmented system because every state does its own thing. Um, uh, so I don't know about taxes. <laughs> Well, Whitney, I, I have no doubt if you keep doing what you're doing, that that may be something that one day that people in the United States can hope to enjoy. Whitney, this has been a hugely valuable and interesting conversation. I've learned a lot, and I'm sure the people that have been listening to this will have also. Thank you for so generously sharing your experience and your insights today. Well, thanks. Those were great questions. I made, made me think, so that was fun. <laughs> You're most welcome. And thank you also, Whitney, for your outstanding and continued contribution to the field of UX over the past 30 or so years. Well, thank you. It's nice to have survived this long. <laughs> Whitney, if people want to find out more about what you and the centre do and the things that you're up to, what is the best way for them to do that? Our website, it's civicdesign.org. Uh, we do have a newsletter. It is, I will confess up front it's mainly aimed for election departments they're all tips for election design but they're mm -hmm. fun um, we publish everything out in the open uh, so there's there's a lot of stuff there to look through and a lot of research papers and a lot of sample designs and things so that uh, if you're in the US we run a, a list we call the irregulars which are people who would like maybe to hear about opportunities to either volunteer or work in elections sometimes we post other jobs in, in government, because it mm. seems like too good an opportunity to pass up. Um, so that's a little bit of a community. And look, besides us, there's a lot of communities growing up. So um, I, I want to take it one step beyond what, what we do, which is that in, in a lot of cities, there are um, groups of people that meet to do civic tech design. In, in New York, it's called Beta NYC. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and those are great communities to be part of. So. Uh, you can do you can do good and excellent things. And uh, the last thing is to say, uh, especially if you're not in a big city, uh, walk into your election office and say, "Hi, I have some skills, and I would love to help you with them with elections." Mm. Thanks, Whitney. That's a really important point and call to action for the designers and the UXers out there that are listening that they can actually contribute and make a difference to civic design. Yeah, really great.
And to everyone that's been listening, it's been great having you here as well. Everything that Whitney and I have covered will be in the show notes, including where you can find Whitney and the Centre for Civic Design, plus any of the other resources that we've mentioned. If you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX design and product, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe. And until next time, keep being brave.